Hi everyone, this is Working Title, the podcast where we, four intrepid, handsome, intelligent, and entirely fraudulent reviewers, watch and review IMDb's top 250 English language movies as of November 2019, going from bottom to top. So watch along with us, and... It's not about how hard you can film, it's about how hard you can get filmed, and keep filming. That's Christmas. It's Christmas. I could have choked him with a rope. <laughs> like he was some spring chicken. Uh, I liked him better in Mary Poppins. Was he in Mary Poppins? No. We're talking about Dick Van Dyke? <laughs> <laughs> this movie had Dick Van Dyke? Hey, <laughs> yeah, he, he Mary. The body. <laughs> he choked him with a rope. <laughs> I choke uh, people with a rope. <laughs> Julie Andrews was in rope. <laughs> yeah, she was the rope. All right, let's kick this off. Oh boy! All right, so welcome back uh, to Working Title, the podcast you know and love, the nationally acclaimed podcast where we talk about movies for anywhere from twenty minutes to I don't know sixty, I guess. Episode 17 coming to you today, where we are talking about the 1948 movie Rope by none other than Alfred Hitchcock, who, of course, needs no introduction, um, based on a play of the same name. You can kind of feel that. And um, kind of a, a fairly a fairly well-known cast for the year. This is an interesting one. It's experimental and it's unorthodox in a lot of ways. It definitely surprised me. Um, of course, you know, as you can expect from Hitchcock, it is kind of a psychological film. It's kind of a, um, I wouldn't quite say horror, but it is a thriller. It is a crime film. Um, it's an interesting one. I'm sure we're going to have lots to say about it. But before we start talking about the movie, let's talk about those of us here in the studio. To start us off, uh, my name's Jack. And if I had to name a book that would be a terrible movie, I'd pick The Principia Mathematica by Bertrand Russell. <laughs> wow. That would suck. Yeah. I haven't even seen it. Totally know what that is, but it sounds terrible. I don't know how a movie about a dictionary is going to do anything, but... Would it just be like a person reading it off? You tell me. I just be a lot be like this movie. <laughs> I think we can all agree that it would make a terrible movie. <laughs> All right. Nowhere to go but up, boys. <laughs> uh, so my name is Mike, and uh, I think a movie that would make a pretty terrible film would be, um, but that is considered a good book, would be uh, Sun Tzu's The Art of War. <laughs> I'm picturing that now, and it seems like one of those things where Hollywood just takes the title and makes a completely unrelated movie. So Tom, Tom Cruise's The Art of War? In my version, it would just be a very old uh, Asian man explaining how to defeat your enemies. Just sitting in a room telling you, overwhelm your enemies. Come from the flank. Make sure that your enemies think you're weak when you're strong. Make sure that you're strong why when they... Why does it have to be an Asian man? Why, why can't it be Ken Burns? His name is Sun Tzu. <laughs> I'd watch Ken Burns' Art of War. Because you know what? I'm not going to whitewash Sun Tzu's The Art of War. Just I'm a... just picturing the black and white photos fading across the screen for some reason it's just the civil war documentary repurposed <laughs> <laughs> all right 
my name is Shane, and I chose Ian Fleming's Octopussy. Because <laughs> I just don't know how about an octopus with eight cats is going to play on screen. So, confirming something we already knew: Shane doesn't read books <laughs> or watch I, movies. I still don't know. Is it about a cat with eight legs, or I don't know, an octopus with fur? <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'm June with a unpopular opinion on a book that would make a terrible movie. Starship Troopers. Oh. Now, hold on a second there. You know what? Starship Troopers is an excellent movie because it is not the book it was based off of. Exactly. <laughs> it's basically a middle finger to everyone that read the book. <laughs> great book, great movie, but if the movie was a direct adaptation of the Ooh. book, it would be terrible. I see what you're doing there, and I agree uh, with you. Yeah, I. the only thing it lent uh, the book gave to the movie was bugs and the mobile infantry. Hmm. That, that's true. You're right. All right. So, Rope, Alfred Hitchcock, uh, based on a stage play. So, I'm just going to get this out of the way to the start. June, do you want to talk about the cinematography? Yes. In fact, I focused so much on the cinematography that I couldn't really tell you what happens in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> the same thing. Oh, my God. So, I'm not the only one. We'll have a lot to say about this, but also up June's entire perspective on this with two simple words, long take. Actually, I'm going to start us off on a different route. I'm going to give props to the gaffer in this film because the opening scene, uh, we'll, we'll get into the plot here, but at, at one point, uh, the character opens the curtains uh, of this room to open up a uh, cityscape which is like clearly a a matte painting um and the lighting slowly increases as uh as if it was letting in daylight and it's just impeccably timed mm. there's a there's some lego buildings in there yeah, <laughs> yeah there's, there's some there's some cardboard buildings um but let me tell you about the long takes in this film people well, well me will uh talk all day about how skillful the shots are and you know, praise the cinematographer, but I think we often forget the importance of the actors in executing these shots, right? Like, could you imagine how goddamn frustrating it would be as a director if an actor fucked up a line nine minutes into a ten-minute shot? <laughs> I thought you were going to say, like, these long takes wouldn't be very interesting if there were no people acting in them. I mean, <laughs> I, I thought you were going to say... False. It's just a video of a room. I thought you were going to say it was it was very noticeable when people were purposefully moving out of the way of the camera. To to an extent. I was going to say play the drinking game spot that cut. <laughs> yeah, so, no, uh, yeah. On that note, uh this film in particular I think is very skillful um obviously by design and the long takes. So the opening scene uh appears to be almost 20 minutes long, but it's actually two separate shots of 10 minutes and uh they were like kind of perfectly transitioned by zooming into the main character's jacket and then panning back out. That happened a lot. Yeah, um, that's yeah. a pattern that happened a few times, but it was very skillful. And the the reasoning for that was uh, in, in the olden times, a magaz- a single magazine of film was limited to 10 minutes. And I, I just get this feeling that if Hitchcock were to make this or any of his movies really, um, with today's like digital technology, that he would his crazy ass would try to film this whole thing in one take. 
<laughs> the only the only objection I want to make to that is technically with film, it's not called a magazine. It's called a clip. Ever since the assault ban on film. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's highbrow. That's funny. <laughs> so there I definitely agree. There are points where um things are impeccably timed or things are very clever. I think we'll get to those as we kind of discuss what happens in this movie. For now, Mike, do you want to start explaining what the plot of this movie is? Yeah, I'm glad you kind of laid it out that way, though, because now we kind of have an idea of what the movie's, the way it's revolved around. The entire film takes place in a, a this the same apartment. Um, this apartment belongs to a man named uh, Brandon. And Brandon and his friend Philip have devised a way to commit uh, what they consider to be the perfect murder. So the film starts off with a high shot up above this uh, New York City, and it's New York, right? Yeah. Yeah. So then we hear a scream, and we go into their apartment, and it shows Brandon and Philip strangling a man whose name is uh, David, um, hold on, David Kentley? Kentley, yep. Yeah. So they just murder this man, David Kentley, and they hide his body in this uh, dresser, this kind of like Bordeaux that's in their middle of their living room in this, this high-rise apartment. Um, that's where we kind of kick off. They open up the drapes and it shows this, this, uh, cityscape like June was talking about. And, uh, we have a discussion between the two where it's very apparent that this is the first time they've done anything like this, but they have been thinking about this for a long time. Um, these two are friends. They've, they've known each other since they were in middle or, you know, uh, primary school. And, uh, they've devised this plan to commit murder just out of the pure, um, I guess, sport of, of committing murder. There's nothing else. They've planned it out and they've done it for pure pleasure. To put on top of that, these people think of themselves as very intellectual, you know, individuals. And they not only want to commit a murder, but they want to do it where they kind of rub it in the face of, of God. So they're going to have a dinner party right after they've killed David, where not only are they bringing in a couple of their friends and a, a professor of one of them, but they're also bringing David's parents to join them for this dinner party. Um, in Alfred Hitchcock fashion, we, it's very morbid for the 1940s, uh, but that sets up the scene for this um, rhetoric between this high-class society in New York who uh, are, are kind of... They're, they're playing with the, the serial killer aspect of... It's almost as if they want to get caught but they're trying to prove how smart they are and how they've outwitted everybody. Um, in their conversation before the dinner party, uh, Brandon makes it very apparent that he has been thinking about this since he studied under a professor in college whose name was Rupert. And Rupert is a uh, philosopher who kind of put the idea in his head at a younger age that he, Rupert kind of told him that, you know, somebody who could, who could murder should be a higher class, higher intelligence, and people who are inferior deserve to be murdered, and it should be legal for somebody to be able to do this if they are intelligent enough to pull it off. So we see that Brandon is is definitely kind of the mastermind, and he's really, he's latched onto these words from Rupert, and he's actually invited Rupert to join the dinner party. Um, his friend Philip, however, is immediately having second thoughts, is immediately is worried, and you can see that he is struggling with this concept. Uh, before the dinner party kicks off, the last thing Brandon does before the guests arrive is he wants to take it one step further where he takes all of the, the food and the candles and he moves it from the dining room to the uh, the room where they just barely murdered David. And they set up the, the dining area on top of the, the, the case that David is inside of so that the guests will have to eat the food from on top of the case. 
Yeah, so they lay out, at least in my opinion, it felt like it was pretty clear from the get-go how this movie would play out. It would be that uh, Brandon would, you know, need to kind of push the boundaries and clue people in and, you know, he needed to to flaunt this murder and get away with it. Meanwhile, Philip, you know, I think clearly was uh, not able to hold it as well. And, you know, it seemed like ultimately that would be the undoing of all this. I don't know if you all felt the same way, but the kind of the, the dynamic there seemed to be telegraphed well, well, well in advance. Oh, definitely. Especially yeah. because uh, even Brandon takes the murder weapon, the rope that was, you know, it's hanging out of the drawer and he takes it. And Philip's just, he's, he's, he says, we should hide it. And Brandon's like, no, 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 no. We, we don't need to hide this. There's no reason to hide it. And he's swinging it around next to himself as he's walking through the room, not trying to hide it at all. Yeah, it's a good contrast. He's kind of reveling in it. Um, what do you think of this, June? I'll bring in a little key here. Uh, going back to the, the cinematography of it all, I think my favorite shot in this, in this movie is during the opening sequence, uh, as Mike said, he goes to hide the rope in a in a separate room. We see him store the rope through a swinging door. Oh, uh, yeah. The door is swinging open and closed, and you can see kind of shots perfectly timed again as he's putting the rope in a drawer. Yeah, I noticed that too. It was like perfect. It, it was so perfect, you can't miss it. You're like, whoa, that was excellent. Because it swings... He opens the drawer, it swings back, you see him put it in, and then it swings again or something like that. It's pretty good. Yeah, and I think uh, my last harping on the uh, the long takes, but I think... Oh, I hope it's not your last. (laughs) Compared to films these days, uh, like today's films are kind of missing the type of purity, if you will. But I think back then it was kind of brought on by necessity. Uh, what, What I mean by that is like, the, for instance, the animatronics in Jurassic Park or the miniatures in Star Wars, you know, these are all in a sense like playing tricks on the viewers. And nowadays it's just kind of taking a backseat to computer graphics. Can I make a, not an argument, but a, a, like kind of a uh, an opinion no, about that? You can only make an argument. <laughs> I will accept only opinions. Well, here's my opinion argument why June is wrong. Um, <laughs> I've noticed that as well, but it, I don't think it's purity is the right word for this type of movie. I've noticed that a lot of these old-fashioned type of movies, or I should say prior to 1960 movies, um, are based off of stage plays, and as this one is. Yeah. I didn't know this was based off of a stage play, and I immediately watched it. It was like, Jesus Christ, it's just like watching a play again. And I've noticed that with a lot of the movies that are old-fashioned, where they're it's not only that it's pure, but it's almost as if they're, they haven't learned how to make a different type of movie yet. They're basing them off a of play still. I will say I mean, that Sleuth that... adapts a little better to a movie. This one stays pretty straight on with a play, but I think Hitchcock did a good thing with the long takes and the the kind of de- deception that there's no cuts, and that breaks it up in a way. I will argue the argument by saying this movie was clearly paying homage to the stage. Whereas something like Sleuth was an adaptation, uh, mm. it was purely an adaptation, yeah. and I think the you know the long takes in particular they they help keep the original integrity of the stage play uh, by design. But at the same time, going back to the actors, like it keeps the the concept of acting authentic. I think um, in that like these actors can't just show their face for five minutes, say a quick line, and then like go fuck off to their trailer. 
Oh, I agree with that 100%. It's more of a rhetoric between the two. They have very drawn-out conversations that are in-depth, and instead of pushing the story in your face through, like, visuals, it's as if they're explaining it and allowing the audience to fill in the gaps. And that's really, like, that's really fresh with these type of older movies. Yeah, and I think it, this, w- this would have been very easy to be like, yeah, you know, he'll just open up the windows, it'll be a green screen, and we'll just chroma key it in later. Or in the, going back to the necessity of it, so this movie does have hard cuts, but they're right around uh, each like 20 minute mark, which equates to two magazines or one reel of film. So when this has been playing in a theater, 20 minutes hits, the projectionist would have to swap out reels. And that's where he puts those cuts. Okay, that means there was only four of those throughout this entire movie. Yeah, yeah. something like that. Huh. So Shane's contract stipulates that we let him weigh in on each section of the recap. So this is I, your chance. I've not been allowed to talk because I'll start irrationally laughing at anything I say. But uh, no, so... Don't laugh now. <laughs> <laughs> so the one... <laughs> <laughs> oh you fucked up son of a bitch (laughs) no what I was gonna say before you fucked me all up was when 1940s Ben Affleck and what was it Philip that can't hold his shit together the one thing that I hate that they'll carry over from the stage is like the open uh, I guess they're telling you what they're thinking instead of just doing because in a movie you can kind of fiddle and portray through action ah, like, contrary to my point they'll be like you know oh isn't murder sweet and wonderful it's amazing that we've planned this for so long and i think i'll place this candle here and you're like i understand with the stage play because it's a little bit different setting there's a different venue but in a movie you don't have to do that as much but they do it and it's very annoying for the first let me let me let me run the opposite past you if we just had them be like murder some dude look at each other and then just start moving some candles around the room and then a party <laughs> starts that'd be a little bit weird i would have preferred that just cut out 10 <laughs> minutes of just bullshit talking what i will say is i both agree and disagree shane mm. so i th- i think you're right um, at times the dialogue feels a little on the nose but there are also some very subtle physical acting cues. And um, I think uh, there, there's more we'll get into, especially as we kind of get into what happens at the party. But especially in this section, there were times where, uh, you know, they're talking to their housekeeper and Philip offers like a, a pretty subtle look at Brandon or at other things um, that I think is... Very understated and very clever. There are even times, and we'll get into this later in the movie, but there are times where you'll see a character looking at something off screen, but mm. the set is so consistent that you know exactly what they're looking at. You know, the the character is looking at you, the audience, but you know the position in the room where you quote unquote stand. So you know exactly what the character is looking at too. Yeah, very good. Yeah. There is uh- a... I'm sorry. I was, go ahead. I was just gonna say that the first act of this movie is not its strong point for sure. It it didn't win me over until like two and three. That's when I actually became interested. But I felt like I was grinding through the first part because I just had nothing to tie me in. I'm just like, okay, they choked the shit out of this guy, and now they want to have a party. Okay. Um, if only you had a rope. Yeah. So <laughs> maybe that's a good opportunity for us to get into Act Two. Sure. Um. 
before we go into that though, I think uh, something to mention is so so Philip and, and Brandon are kind of holding it together pretty well right after they murder this guy. Um, Philip a little bit less than Brandon, but Philip really starts to lose it when he sees the rope hanging out of the uh, the the. Can we put a name on this dresser? Is it just a? I don't know the what chest, it is. Like a chest. Yeah, it's a source source books in it. The chest. Anyways, of the rope's murder. hanging out of the chest. <laughs> the murder. The murder boudoir. Um, <laughs> so it's hanging. The rope's hanging out of it, and um, Philip sees it and like starts to panic just by looking at the rope, and. At that point, as Brandon being like kind of the mastermind, like I would have called that whole thing off right then. Like seeing that Philip is not able to handle this when nobody's there would be a good indication that we should probably not bring the guests in. I don't know why he ever chose Millhouse to help him out anyways with this. Like Philip was so worthless and I feel like Brandon could have just choked the guy himself. Like <laughs> Philip was, well, was the weak link before this even started. Well, we're jumping ahead now, but there wasn't at one point they said that that David was strong. So that might happen. Mm. There. So we'll mm. go into the party scene. Um, I, Mrs. I think they are just just before we go, I think they are intellectually akin in this this philosophy of the art of murder or whatever it is that they espouse. Well, we but do I hear think... a story about Philip later on that kind of relates to serial killers. True. I just hate Philip. So uh, right before the party starts and they've just committed murder, uh, their housekeeper Mrs. Wilson uh, comes back, and they had sent Mrs. Wilson out on a uh, errand that took her all around town to pretty much use up her time while they 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 dispatched David. Um, Mrs. Wilson is actually she kind of shows herself to be kind of a a little bit of a smart person as well. She latches on to little details, but being a house uh, maid, she does what she's told, and she starts to set up this party. Um, so when the party starts to kick off, the guests begin to arrive. And the first guest who shows up is um, one of Brandon and Philip's old college uh, friends, whose name is Kent. And he is dating uh, a girl named Janet, who has also been invited to the party. And that relates to the story because Brandon starts to go into this other kind of scheme that he has. Not only is he murdering people, but he's also trying to play matchmaker. Um, Janet used to date David, and that's why she's coming to the party. And Kent used to date Janet before they broke up. So David is kind of, you know, pulling the strings with that thing going on. Well, Janet was uh, currently engaged to David, wasn't she? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, until he died. Right. So then the second guest that show up, we're going to just nail through the guests real quick, is um, Janet. And she did not expect to see Kent there as they're, you know, uh, no longer a couple. And Janet is, she... She's a smart girl, but she's definitely played down as a dumb girl by the 1940s. And she kind of is a, a funny and witty kind of person as well and kind of sees a little bit through Brandon's scheme to try to get Kent into the picture as well. After that, the next person who arrives um, is Rupert, who is, he used to be the housemaster of their of when they were in college together. Uh, he's a publisher, he's a philosopher, and it is the man that Brandon has idolized when he was in college and the person that ended up giving Brandon the idea to try to uh, get away with doing this murder. And lastly, uh, the people who arrive are Mr. Uh, Kentley, who is David's father. And Mrs. Kentley is sick, so she wasn't able to show up. So he instead brought, I think it was his sister, um, whose name is Mrs. Uh, Antwater, or Atwater, sorry. Um so throughout the party, Philip starts to mingle with the folks, and um, it's very apparent that Rupert is is kind of almost like a Sherlock of the time. He's he's kind of sleuthing around, and he notices immediately that Brandon and Philip are acting strange. And it goes into this party scene where there's a discussion uh, about about murder, and Brandon is really pushing 
Rupert's ideals where Rupert goes into how he thinks that, you know, he's theoretically speaking that he thinks that the smarter class and the most intelligent class should have the ability to dispatch who they consider to be inferior. And Brandon really hits on this and he's going into it. And Mr. Kentley, he's just not having any of it. And arguments end up ensuing. Um, And at this point, when Brandon's really kind of nailing the point about murder, uh, everybody's starting to kind of get suspicious why David hasn't shown up yet. This is when Rupert starts to kind of um, see some oddities going on between Philip and Brandon, and he starts to kind of sleuth around. And Philip keeps drinking throughout this entire party. He's getting more and more drunk, and he's acting more and more strange. He cuts his hand at one point. Uh, he's playing the piano, like, erratically. Things are starting to kind of spin out of control. So Mr. Kentley was there to get books, right? He was, like, there to pick up some books or look at some. No, I yeah. think he was invited to the party, right? It, it he was, was invited to the party. So the the whole book thing was that the the... the the case that they have David's body in was the case that stored the books in it. And as an intellectual party, I don't know if you guys have ever been to an intellectual party, but apparently you pull out all your books and you set them out on your dining room table and you just let people pick out the ones they like best. So that's all he was doing was he kind of he emptied out the case and used that as the excuse. In the first scene, he said, isn't it going to be weird that people are going to think we're eating here? He said, no, we'll just tell them that we wanted to display the books on our kitchen table for them to look at. So that's why all the books are out there. Okay. So huh. I will I will posit the scene of uh, where they're all having a, the discussion about murder and you know whether it can be justified. Maybe it's because I'm an unworthy middle class American, but like, is is this what like intellectual socialites talk about? They just have dinner parties in their high rise planning the purge. Yeah, they just do <laughs> cocaine and talk about killing polar people. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great if we could just get rid of them? <laughs> Yeah, so I think that's um, Jimmy Stewart's character. What was his name again? Rupert. Rupert. Yeah. yeah. So he he kind of introduces the 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 Nietzschean philosophies, I guess, through his conversation. And I guess it's implied that he was once their professor, and like he kind of you know put the 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 Ubermensch ideal into these guys. It was there. He was not only their professor; he was a housemaster. Did you guys have a housemaster in college? Because I sure didn't. I wasn't in a frat. It was like some boarding school they went to, but they were. We're talking about the upper crust, and frankly, you can say whatever you want about the lives of rich people, and I don't know if any of us will know enough to dispute. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but I guess the the point I'm making is he unwillingly or unwittingly like basically caused these two to murder a, a guy. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And I think it's an interesting dynamic because he he clearly does, to some degree, espouse these ideas. Uh, The murder happened as an exercise and like the fruition of this idea that, you know, the intellectual, intellectually superior, you know, have dominion over the lives of others. And it's an interesting dynamic where I think it's pretty clearly established that he is the one if anyone that will figure this out, whether it's, you know, them saying he might see through it and, you know, in response, uh, Brandon saying, yeah, but he's the one who will understand. Yeah. It's almost as if they, it's almost as if Brandon actually, um, brought Rupert there. Well, he did. It's, it's not, it's very obvious. Brandon brought Rupert there for the, for the, the thrill of somebody being smart enough to figure it out. Yeah. He was like proof of concept for this murder. 
Right. Like, I mean, you talk about serial killing. I mean, Albert or Alfred Hitchcock should know the most about that type of mentality is you you kind of want to get caught from what I've seen in documentaries. Um, yeah, 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 from what what I've seen in documentaries. <laughs> but is is this what is this your your hint to us, Mike, that you're a serial killer? No. I mean, is this you dropping the signals seeing no, if, if, I, we'll if pick i were it a serial up? killer i'd be much more smart than this so what did we learn uh, from sleuth go check mike's clock <laughs> <laughs> on the note of clocks though i do want to say the scene where uh philip plays the piano and rupert talks to him is in this section right mm-hmm. with the metronome yeah that was i think maybe my highlight scene of this movie where um rupert is asking questions to philip who's playing the piano and Philip is kind of his thing is he's like a piano uh prodigy. Man. He's a musician. Yeah. <laughs> Play us a, a song, the piano man. Yeah. Um and that dialogue is very sharp. They're they're talking quickly. You can tell that Philip is cracking. The metronome is adding a different pace to it. And at one point Rupert reaches down and changes the tempo of the metronome too, which kind of affects the dynamic of the conversation as well. It also yeah. affects what he's playing. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and, and you can tell that uh, Philip is extremely nervous, is extremely stressed. And My, then uh, that whole scene ends with them walking into the room, uh, Mr. What's his name? Kentley. With Mr. Kentley walking into the room, and the camera has panned down to look at them from below. And Mr. Kentley walks in in, in his hands with the book the books tied together with this rope that they murdered him with, which was super sharp timing and just really brought that whole thing together so well. I think Rupert's character was 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 pretty phenomenal throughout this. I mean, just the, the little subtleties and everything he was saying, he was alluding to, I mean, just saying words that just sounded like murder and, you know, cover up and even saying like, un, like uh, unprofessional, like he was saying uh, during the metronome scene, he pulled out the metronome and he's like, oh, I didn't know you. Why, why do you have one of these? This is for amateurs. Like just already alluding to the fact that he's been an amateur with what he's done. Like Rupert's known this entire time throughout this when he first arrived at the party that something was going on. You know, I also want to relate to the scene. I also want to point out a phenomenon in this movie that I'm going to start calling the reverse Tarantino. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of close ups on people's hands. Mm. Ah. because they have blood on them yeah so among (laughs) uh one of the more explicit ones is at one point philip has his palms red after he cuts his hands and uh the the woman his or uh david's aunt says to him that she sees fame in his future and he takes this to mean fame as a strangler and he stares at his hands rather than fame as a pianist which is what's you know she cool. surely intended that's um, enveloping rupert or philip at this point um during this scene as well we we alluded a little bit earlier um about him being a strangler with a chicken um brandon obviously is kind of uh taken back by rupert as soon as rupert shows up brandon's like cool collected calm it's gone like he acts nervous around rupert he acts kind of like jittery um kind of like almost like a schoolgirl. um and rupert even brings up a story about brandon that he always used to bring up in his class about uh, this corpse in a dresser that was found years later to have a skeleton inside of it, which is exactly where Brandon hid the body. So this has been something that's been in Brandon's past 
It's been a part of his mentality for a long time, even when, since he was younger. And also, Philip also has this as well going on. Because Brandon tells a story about when Philip was young that he used to choke, he used to strangle chickens. And as soon as he brings up this story, Philip loses his, like, he loses his mind. And, and he, I guess he's, he's worried about being caught. And even the story about him strangling chickens makes him nervous enough to, to yell out against Brandon. Right as a follow-up to this story, um, one thing I do want to mention is this is a great example of some of the, the subtler ways it's acted. Right as this story ends, it um, well, I shouldn't say it cuts over, but the camera pans over to Rupert. And you can see an expression on his face that it's not blatant, it's not shouted out, but it's very clear that this is the point where he starts to suspect. Mm. Okay, so I'm going to butt in now. Okay. We've anyway, been, so the been, other thing I wanted to mention. <laughs> we've been talking real intelligibly about this movie. Intelligently. So, whatever, I'm going to change it. Um, <laughs> I have a problem here with, it's a it's a good film, but so does Rupert get a phone call from Brandon and, and go, oh, I, I remember those kids, the, the kids I had about 12 years ago. Oh, there must be those murdering ones, I thought. Like, how does he know these guys still? Does he not have future classes? And now, hold on, I think he might be onto something. <laughs> if he's so worried about them murdering people, why is he showing up to a party? Like, is he like, I, I guess exactly I gotta go to this party, make sure they didn't strangle nobody. <laughs> That's exactly why. It's because he randomly get a phone call out of the blue, and he's like, "Oh yeah, I remember those kids. Those guys were fucked up. Like, yeah, <laughs> why I'm would going you to that go to party? their party?" <laughs> so. <laughs> A, I don't think he suspected them of murdering David. Absolutely um, not. He shows up until very suspicious. And the other thing, too, is that they they seem to have some kind of, you know, longstanding relationship where he mentions, you know, knowing about Philip's history and knowing, you know, having been on their their farm at some point. Um, so I I think, you know, he's he's a longstanding friend of theirs. He's sure. a family friend. Like, sure. I mean, I'm just trying to envision inviting one of my professors, like my English professor, like, hey, you want to come party? Lo- okay. Well, <laughs> yeah, but you are hardly in school, so. <laughs> True. They would definitely think I murdered someone or planning to murder them. <laughs> oh, fuck. I just, I had a problem with how easy he came to murder. Like, you're just seeing these things, and if you were in that room, maybe because I'm just dumb or something, but. I wouldn't put two and two together very quickly that they choked someone and put them in the boudoir. Well, so keep in mind, Brandon seems to be flaunting it and escalating his hints at every opportunity. Right. And Philip only gets more and more suspicious. And a really crucial point is when they start to leave and someone gives him the wrong hat with David's monogram inside of it. No, yeah, that... That I was like, okay, that's obvious. Like that, if that happened. But before that, it's like David's never late to things. Really, never once. David never just showed up late to a party. Also, David's really strong, really smart, really successful. How the hell did he get roped into this? Ha! Loop what do you? <laughs> what? <laughs> this is the part where we break June. <laughs> uh, what do you guys think boudoir means? I, am, I don't know, June. <laughs> it's a Be rich people word. <laughs> that sounded funny. Define it for us, June. It, it, it is a 
you're familiar with boudoir photography. Okay. It, is a, it describes a room in, in which you would... A, a woman's private room, if you will. Yeah, dresser. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's the 1940s coming out. They treated Janet like shit throughout this entire film. She really needed a boudoir. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, so, they did treat you, did Janet you, like shit, but go ahead. Do you have any thoughts on this, uh, on the party, June? Uh, well, I think th- this is the part that, like, lacked substance, in my opinion. Um, I kind of agree with Shane in the sense that it was almost too easy, but through the lens that it wasn't very interesting to me as the viewer. It wasn't like Sleuth, where you were, you know, kind of thought one way and then it ended up being another. It was very, like, sequentially, like, okay, he did this, he did that, and then now he knows. Well, Sleuth sets you up for a battle of wits, which is why you enjoy them bantering. This didn't set up for a battle of wits. It's a bunch of unsuspecting partygoers. So, like, if this you just... was like a a kamikaze of wits. <laughs> well, <laughs> wits aside, I think what what Alfred was trying to go for with this film was that he showed the murder at the beginning. There was no, I mean, he even showed where they put the body, and and like June was, or sorry, Shane, or the other person in this podcast, the last person, Jack was saying. <laughs> Uh, it's starting to sound Jack like my saying, dad. <laughs> can't name all his kids. <laughs> like, uh, like Jack was saying, throughout the film, we can see where the actors' eyes are going. So whenever they're feeling guilty, they're looking. And from the audience perspective, we know what they're looking at. And there's a really good scene that, that really kind of nails us down where we know where the body is. We're waiting for this to kick off. And they're starting to clean up the party, Mrs. Wilson. And she's taking the, the dishes off of the top of the dresser. She's moving them into the kitchen. And it's another long shot. We can hear the guests. And it's just focusing on the dresser. And it's watching her go back and forth from the kitchen, t- taking the dishes back and forth. We can hear the guests talking. And she's removing stuff slowly and slowly. And it's getting to the point where I was like, they're gonna, they're, she's going to open up this dresser. She's bringing the books over like to put back in there. And then at the last second... Uh, Rupert walks over to help her with the books and then Brandon shows up and like slams the dresser shut again. So really the suspense in this is not the wittiness. The suspense in this is when are they going to find out the body's in there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just, uh, I think, next, I think it loses something just being on film. I'm sure it's really fun on stage, but you didn't like that part. No, it's, a, I, it's good. It's all very clever. I don't, I don't know how to feel about this. I think it could have been executed a little differently. Uh, it was all set up for kind of a, a telltale heart uh, narrative, but mm-hmm. really it just kind of sat there for the whole party, and then he just walks up to it and tries to open it. It could have been a little more suspenseful throughout instead of just that one scene. Yeah. Was there music in this, like ambiance music? Because I'm, no. I'm trying to think about classic Hitchcock scores, and I don't think there was any like suspenseful or thrilling music to like spike and stuff like that to help with that there was uh the very beginning they're playing very nice music and then after that i think it was just the radio and um, him playing the piano mm-hmm. i'm just thinking like just that could have helped a little bit i'm just trying to say like things that they could have used that you have when you make a movie that you don't on stage well even on stage you'd have that i don't fucking know i didn't understand a word of that I think what he's trying to say is we need to bring back pre-movie credits. Why don't they do that anymore? Let's get the credits out of the way. (laughs) That's exactly what I was saying. No, I don't know. It's like half of me 
dislikes this movie a lot, and the other half of me respects the shit out of this movie. So it's hard to talk about. I think you keyed into it right there uh, with your choice of words. It's not necessarily the most enjoyable movie, but you have to respect it. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's yeah. true. It's like your dad. <laughs> Stepdad, don't have to like him, but he demands your respect. Smoothie is my stepdad. <laughs> so let's uh, let's come back to this stuff as we kind of get through the whole movie because I I I agree. I have some other thoughts on that as well. What happens after the party? Let take us take us the rest of the way, Mike. So at the very end of the party, right before everybody starts to kind of leave and, and go their separate ways. Um, Mrs. Wilson's talking to Rupert and she's telling him about how strange Philip and Brandon have been acting and how she was sent out to do these errands and how she came back and they were acting weird after that. And this is the point where everything that Rupert's been suspicious about seems to be coming concrete. And as he's leaving, um, well, it's before they're leaving, they get a call from Mrs. Kentley, who is now uh, thinking that something terrible has happened to David. So the party breaks up, everybody starts to leave, they all leave at once. And I think uh, somebody mentioned that as Rupert's leaving, he's given the wrong hat by Mrs. Wilson, which has the initials DK inside of it for David Kentley. And now all of his suspicions have been confirmed. Um, So he leaves and Brandon and Philip think they've gotten away with it. The next step in their plan is they're supposed to be going to the countryside to allow Philip to have like a six week hiatus before he has to do his first um, concert as a pianist. And in the, in the meantime, they're going to take the body out in the middle of the night and dispose of it. But before they can do that, uh, somebody rings the phone, and it's 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 Rupert. And he says that he forgot his cigarette case in their apartment. He wants to come up and get it. Philip has been drinking a, a bunch now, and he's, he's like hammer drunk. And he he thinks Rupert knows because of all the questions he's been asked. He's He's losing his mind. And Brandon goes and gets a gun from his his bedroom and brings it out. Um, And Brandon says he won't let anybody let him go to jail or, you know, let him get caught for this. So Rupert comes back up to the apartment, comes in, uh, starts to play dumb, takes his cigarette case, uh, you know, nonchalantly without being seen and puts it next to the the pile of books that are now on the case where David's body is hidden. Um, through their conversation, he alludes to the fact that he he knows, but he's kind of, you know, pussyfooting around it and brings about a cigarette case and uh, calls out Brandon for having a gun. Brandon pulls it out. There's this the whole thing about Brandon thinking that Rupert taught him that this was something that he should be able to do as an intellectual. And finally, Rupert, or Rupert goes over to the case, opens it up, finds the body, and... Uh, Everything about what he's taught these kids, it changes instantly. He he accuses Brandon of taking away everything he thought, and he takes it all back, and he says that all the stuff that he believed in is now false, and that everybody has a right to live, and uh, grabs the gun, and in his last scenes of the movie, he alludes to the police by opening up a window and shooting his gun out the window to make the police come. And the closing scene is Brandon pouring himself a drink, Rupert sitting down watching them, and Philip playing a piano with sirens in the background. So what I will say is I don't think Rupert suspected that they had murdered David until the very end of this movie. The impression I get is that he was just suspicious in general and left, had second thoughts, and came back just to just to 
see if he could figure it out. I I would say he was he had his suspicions. It already came up in his mind that they did it. He just didn't know the how. Which brings me to my point. If he did all this after he goes back to the apartment, opens the door, I don't know why he just didn't like fling open the chest and be like, "Ha, Jacques!" <laughs> so I it think it was you with the rope in the living room. Well, that's another thing. So he, I missed that part on the. He did bring back the rope that was used to tie up the books. So he did bring back what he thought was going to be. Um, because I guess he saw Philip, his reaction to the rope. So he, he brought the rope back up. So I guess where I'm coming from is all of his thinking was framed around this idea of not murdering him, but, well, maybe, I don't know, but rather of just making him indisposed somehow. It's hard to tell with the confession by Socratic method that Brandon does. Well, also, I don't think it'd be a good idea for him. I think when Rupert came up and he saw that Brandon had his hand in his pocket, which he hadn't had the entire dinner, like, and he knew it was a gun in there. Like, if he came running in and was like, pulled it open and accused them of murder, like, he could get shot. So, that's probably that's not fair. a good idea. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. very fair, actually. So, the other thing I want to say is, they talk through this, Brandon essentially confesses to him, and then Rupert goes on this soliloquy about how his mind has changed and everyone has a right to live. And it took away from the movie for me. It it just felt too on the nose. You're right. I shouldn't have filled your head with all those dreams of murder and stuff. I see the error of my ways now. No one should be murdered or theoretically murdered. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought was going to happen, which was going to be more of a Hitchcocky kind of ending, was as soon as those uh, those neon lights started flashing with the green and the reds, and he like uh, Rupert pulled the rope out of his pocket. I thought Rupert was gonna murder the two guys, mm-hmm. and that would be the perfect. Because I think like throughout the movie they were talking about Rupert wanting to be the murderer, and I thought for sure that Rupert was gonna kill these guys. You think you're the only one that wanted to strangle David? <laughs> <laughs> I I kind of disagree with Jack. I really liked the monologue. I thought it was fucking epic, and Jimmy Stewart just nailed it. And maybe that's looking at it from kind of a meta lens, but uh. I, I see a lot of character development in Rupert in that, you know, he can talk the talk and teach these philosophical concepts. But, you know, when it comes time to like, when, when you're faced with a, a corpse, you're like, oh, you know, okay, maybe, uh, <laughs> maybe some of this is wrong. You know what? Now that I think about it, it's kind of fucked up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. What about some of the guilt behind that? Like the dude just like Rupert. <laughs> Brandon just told him, like, I did this for you, Rupert. It's all for you, Rupert. <laughs> so we could be together, Rupert. <laughs> oh, shit. What I hated was the end. Like, it was perfect, the lighting, where it's like the green and the red are flashing back and forth. And then he goes and fires his gun off to, like, give them away. And everyone's I... like, did you hear those gunshots? Yeah, I think they're right there. So much gun- like. Have you ever been in a neighborhood that fires gunshots? No one says shit, and they all stay inside. And the cops go, where did it happen? But there's no one. Why didn't he just go to the phone, since he has the gun, (laughs) and be like, yeah, I'm at this address. There's a dead body. Instead of just, well, I hope someone guesses where the gunshots came from. (laughs) I also, also, I think it's illegal to shoot a gun out a window in New York City. (laughs) Ironically... Let's untangle not this rope, but this gun uh, <laughs> line, right? So there's a struggle over the gun, and it's like 
really kind of cheesily choreographed. Mm-hmm. The gun goes off, and it's like totally fine. But then he shoots three shots like out the window, and suddenly the whole apartment's in uproar. Like so, the, so the downstairs neighbors like didn't hear the first gunshot or notice the thirty-eight caliber size hole that magically appeared in their ceiling. <laughs> and then also put yourself in uh, in Rupert's position, right? So the cops show up, and he's like, yeah, you know, these guys strangled this dude, uh, tried to pull a gun on me, and I wrestled it out, and then I fired some shots so people would know. Yeah, would the <laughs> cop be like... See, if Brandon's an intellectual, sir, this guy's been holding us at gunpoint, I watched yeah. him strangle that dude and put him in the cabinet. It's like, yeah, so you're standing here with a gun... And the rope. Uh, with two college students here, what, and a dead guy... And you didn't, like, just call the police? So let me get this straight, say. This guy strangled him, right? Then he threw a party and had you all over around the dead body to have a party. And at the party, he then talked all philosophical and you ate turkey and looked at books. And then you figured it out. Sounds solid to me. Case closed. (laughs) He's got the gun and the rope in his pocket. (laughs) He has all the murder weapons and he's accusing this I is a really Clue. shitty game of Clue. <laughs> <laughs> it was me with the rope and the gun in the living room. So I I do want to mention, um, we kind of talked about the, the lighting at the end there with the neon signs. It's pretty impressive. And I think this is the earliest color movie we've seen as part of this podcast yet. It was It was filmed in Technicolor. So it was Technicolor? I didn't, I didn't see it in the intro. I thought about that. Because I was like, 1948, this is going to be black and white. And it was totally in color. Looked good, too. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, any any thoughts about the way this movie ends before we start talking about the movie as a whole and how it did? I like Hitchcock better than this movie. I liked, I enjoyed the director more than I enjoyed the movie. <laughs> so I think, uh, June, since you were a, a avid studier of film, Hitchcock always had a cameo in all of his films, right? Uh, yes. What was his cameo in this? So he is in the uh, the backdrop. Uh, what's the word? The the neon signs or whatever, right? Uh, out in the back. He's just oh, like yeah? this. His like uh, his portrait. Yes, is. yes. His uh, profile is uh, in. It's like in red in the background. Oh, I thought he was the neon sign. <laughs> I thought the neon sign said Hitchcock. So I guess just thinking about this movie as a whole. You know, um, I'm kind of in a similar situation where this was like incredibly technically proficient, and the acting colorly proficient. <laughs> well, you don't say. And, yeah, and the acting was excellent, but the plot and just the concept seemed to be spread pretty thin. Like this, yeah. this felt more like an exercise in, you know, the film work, the camera work, the you know that that kind of stuff, rather than an interesting story yeah this makes me appreciate birdman more and anyone have any last words about the movie as a whole before we start talking like production and reception and that kind of stuff i got one more thing to say i think uh june or sorry uh shane <laughs> last word <laughs> jack you were talking about <laughs> what are you bastards this is verbatim what conversations with my dad were like when i was a kid Jack, no, Sam, no, shit, whoever the hell you are. So out of this conversation that Rupert's talking about, how he's he's changed his mind about all the stuff that he taught them, and he, you know, he, 
he feels like people should have the right to live and blah 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 he says words uh you took my words and you you the meaning of them and you changed them for what i meant he was spot on saying like not only 30 <laughs> minutes ago that he thinks stupid people should be murdered <laughs> yeah what the fuck was the alternate interpretation that he thought yeah. <laughs> he thought they should be taking away he it's literally like said there point. should be a hunting season for <laughs> stupid <laughs> people like you don't you don't seriously mean that the rich should be able to to kill the poor well not out of season <laughs> well, why didn't it's you like tell me thought, it's like rupert thought somebody had like a, a bug in the room it was just like i didn't say those things like I'm, it wasn't meant that way <laughs> poor david like, they're basically saying he was stupid and needed to be choked to death. Like, what did David ever do? And why was it David and not just some hobo? <laughs> I think David could have been at the party. <laughs> what smells like dead hobo in here? <laughs> they couldn't invite the hobo's family to come to the party. <laughs> so, I, I have a question I want to pose to y'all. So it sounds like we are all in consensus that what was incredible about this movie was the work that went into, well, we all consistently agree that the camera work was incredible, right? Mm -hmm. If we think that the production value of this was what sets this apart, is it also fair to judge movies in 2020 for having incredible special effects? Because that is also production value there is there is something where you are creative by necessity and a lot of older films have that because they don't have access to technology to do the things they want to do so they get creative and that's why you get these interesting things it still happens today but much less but it can be said you know a lot of older 40s movies do the same thing because it's just what they had but you can tell the difference when you see it. I would contest that just You just because... rephrased what I said earlier. But I said it better. <laughs> <laughs> what I would say is that adding things in digitally to a movie is not... Just because it can be done with a computer does not make it easy. It just means more can be done. To answer your question, Jack, uh, yes. <laughs> it is fair to judge new movies on their cg because you can tell when the computer graphics are trash and then you judge that movie right true no, yeah. are we comparing that to 10 years ago trash cg but like if you go back and you watch jurassic park that was terrible but it was awesome wait what what did you just say it was terrible awesome no the point i was trying to make was if you're talking about like doing computer graphics you got to talk about the time period. If you're talking about 2020 computer graphics, absolutely. But if you're talking about computer graphics, when computer graphics first came out, they were amazing for the time. But where you, Shane, what you were saying with this film was there's a necessity for the time period to make this movie the way it was because we're talking about the 1940s, whereas computer graphics in the 2020s is going to look better than 2002's computer graphics. I, I guess kind of another way to phrase the question I'm posing is... If in 2020 we saw a movie that was utterly visually compelling, but had just a a stretched thin plot in the same way this movie did, would we also rate that as highly for the ambition on the production front rather than on the plot? Yes, but you also you need to keep in mind time period. So as we watch as you know, 30 year olds in 2020 
we watch 1950-year-old movies, we need to keep in mind that this was a time period, so we can't just shit on this movie for being old. No, I no, mean, that's no, no, not that's what, what I'm saying. saying is, does movie magic move it up more, or does the yeah, plot that. support the film more? Take okay. away the time period. Yeah, put it put it this way, movie magic. This movie was incredible because of the movie magic. Right. The equivalent in this day and age is a movie, you know, that you might say is visually stunning. Uh, so if we know, took the, this movie, re- remade it with a bunch of like Michael Bay explosions, it'd be amazing. No, yeah, no get on board. that's not what I'm saying. No. <laughs> but if uh, if you or if so you had another movie with the axles on this, <laughs> so I have a, I have. Like Why are you laughing at that, Shane? That wasn't even a joke. I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just love how like, wait, so you're saying if a movie was in 1950, but it had okay. Michael Bay and stuff. <laughs> no, June so, is about to actually answer the question. Go ahead, go ahead. So to caveat Mike's comment, I'm not saying like you compare the Scorpion King to the Avengers <laughs> and say it's shit, right? Two quantifiable instances we can look at is if we look at it through achievements in cinematography because at the end of the day this isn't uh visual effects right Uh um so if you compare like this movie to say 1917 right the camera work was was phenomenal in that and i think we we credit it as such so i would say yes you know even though the substance might not quite be there you can still appreciate these achievements that's a good way of putting it Right, the cinematography earns you a place in movie history. Well, and, and I think it can be more than just, you know, cinematography. It can be a lot of things about a movie. Anyway, um, <laughs> good chat. That was a shit show. I mean, if if it was just me and June talking, it would have been a shit show. <laughs> wow, man. Back to the <laughs> note. <laughs> uh, just kind of talking about the camp work in this movie. There was a lot that went into this. Um the set in many places was on rollers so that walls could be shifted out of the way for the camera to move through. Um, people were constantly moving the furniture out of the way. And keep in mind, like this was in Technicolor in 1948. These are not small cameras. Um, and they had to get replaced in the right location. People had to be in and out of the way and constantly the backdrops had to be shifted. It was It's pretty impressive. This was uh, a monumental effort, I think to make this work that's cool like a rubik's cube of a set i I, a rubik's cube of a set like a a rube goldberg machine of a set (laughs) he said what he meant (laughs) 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 i I don't know man i'm i don't know what's going on anymore (laughs) so this movie was made on uh a budget of about one and a half million, maybe two brought in 2.2 or 2.8, depending on how you skin it. So, you know, it did make a profit, but it wasn't immensely successful. Not a lot of merchandise sales. (laughs) (laughs) So interestingly, um, so today critics kind of consider this an excellent movie, right? And almost universally, but Hitchcock at the time, might have considered this a failure just based on quotes from him. This was, I mean, compared to other Hitchcock movies, this is definitely the most experimental. Um, This does something different. Um, 
Yeah, so this is kind of a, a um, friend of a friend said, but Roger Ebert wrote that Alfred Hitchcock called Rope an experiment that didn't work out, and he was happy to see it kept out of release for most of three decades. So I think that's really interesting. Hitchcock himself didn't like it. Hmm. But it's it's super well regarded today. Uh, with that said, um, just to kind of discuss, you know, we, we've talked about where other people rate it. We, of course, know where the good people of IMBD rate it. Now it's time for us to kind of impose our own rankings on it and see where it falls within our personal ordering of the world. June, where do you put this one? Um, I mean, like you were saying, I, I really appreciate the amount of work and the, the skill that went into making this film. But the whole time, I just kept thinking, like, this movie was almost sleuth. Yeah. So, as a result of that, I'm going to put it just under sleuth at number eight. Okay. I forgot that sleuth has gone that low for you. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like I said, it just, the actual, like, base story was not all that interesting. I think it was a little rushed, and it just didn't have that kind of charm. And I think it had the potential to, it just didn't execute as well as it could have. Where do you put it, Shane? I'm looking at the list here, and I saw Annie Hall, and I got angry. But um, I'm looking at, I think, below the killing, just above Touch of Evil. So I think that'll put it at 10. Because I, I think everything below Sin City is basically movies I will never watch again. So it'd be a number 10. Mike, where do you put this? So I, f- I feel like this movie is... What you were just barely saying, June. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock likes to write movies um, from the perspective of serial killer. And I feel like this movie was from the perspective of an audience watching a serial killer. And I think maybe, I don't know what Alfred Hitchcock was thinking, but that's kind of what I feel like is not his best work. Um, So I'd put this right below Sleuth 2007. So number six on my list. Right above Fiddler. So, yeah, I mean, I I don't know what I can say that would not agree with something that's already been said this movie was technically brilliant throughout it had flashes of brilliance but it never quite came together from a plot perspective so i put it in my number eight spot right below short term 12 right ahead of the straight story all right so final judgment do you recommend that our listeners watch this movie june uh i do the cinematography and the filmmaking is something to be appreciated, and I think that alone is enjoyable, and people should, especially in with today's uh, films, it's it's a good thing to appreciate. Shane? If you appreciate films, then yeah, but I feel like you're a casual viewer. Nah. Mike? Nah, this movie is boring as shit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, I'd say watch this movie. Even if it has some some issues, it still brings something to the table. It's interesting. I mean, maybe maybe not if you hate movies, but if you hate movies, I don't know why you're listening to us. Maybe it's because <laughs> we hate movies. <laughs> but I, I'd say it's worth a watch. Yep. So with that said, we have Rope in the Books. Um, what's up next for us? Looks like next week you will be listening to us review The Last Picture Show. 1971 movie what the shit is that (laughs) my question exactly (laughs) it's the last picture show oh there'll be no more picture shows after that is this like kill bill volume 2 where i can't watch the first picture (laughs) show before we watch this (laughs) (laughs) 
All right. Well, thanks for listening with us. Um, We'll catch you next week.